And I'm really glad that, uh, that you all are here today. I really treasure your prayers because uh, approaching this is a daunting, daunting task. Uh, we have a work cut out for us this morning. And uh, with your prayers and the Lord's patience with me, I think we'll do okay. But I, I invite you to take your Bible and join me to begin in, in Matthew chapter number 5. If you're listening outside of these walls, uh, you can join along, whether it's uh, online or by other means. If you're listening to the services of the Broomfield Baptist Church, this is Pastor bringing the Sunday morning message. And there is not really a title uh, for it this morning. It's basically an overview of where we're going in our next days ahead, should the Lord tarry. I'm excited because this is, like I said, it's daunting to think about the Sermon on the Mount. How many times have I read the Sermon on the Mount? How many times have I prayed through the Sermon on the Mount? And yet now I have this task in front of me as a pastor to preach through uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. In part of our overview, for those who might just be joining us, we began last Christmas on a journey that I simply called Breaking Bread with Barnabas. And the idea behind this is that when Paul and Barnabas would go plant churches, they would spend uh, spend some time at a place. And I, I can just imagine that there were certain things as they did this over and over. Uh, they you know, After you do things by experience, you learn, well, we probably shouldn't do it that way when we go to this other town or, or we can reason with them with this instead. And, and, and these men were well-versed with the scriptures. They were people that, that were to be looked at and looked up to when it comes to learning the Bible. In fact, Barnabas was requested to come and the leadership of the Jerusalem church sent him to Antioch to help strengthen their faith. And this is what happens. You know, people go out, and when, when uh, the church is persecuted, they go everywhere with their Bible, and they're preaching the Word. But then uh, the young disciples and, and those that, that know Christ, they get to a point where they're like, I need more. And we, don't, we need some guidance. And so wisely, they sent back to the leadership and said, we need help. Can you send someone to teach us? So enter Paul and Barnabas. Well, Barnabas, and then he would request Paul to come with him. So while they're on their journeys... They would go and they would teach and they would preach Jesus Christ and these churches would be built on that foundation. So uh, I welcome you to Breaking Bread with Barnabas. Now, okay, I'm using my glorified imagination. I'm expecting you to go with me a little bit on this. I don't want to put words in Barnabas' mouth. He might, you know, when I get to heaven, I might be in trouble. He might pull me aside and say, no, Brother Jason, um, <laughs> you know, when you were preaching through that Breaking Bread with Barnabas, uh, let, me, let me set you straight on some things. Uh, that, that'd be totally fine. <laughs> I think we, I think with a little bit of grace, we'll understand where we're going. We're breaking bread with Barnabas. What I wanted to do was put together a body of, of doctrine and teaching that could be reproduced in a church. Let's say that one day we uh, get to where we can plant a church. Let me say that again. Let's, 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 let's just say that one day we get to the point where we're reproducing a church and we're going to be church planting. That's a little better. Okay, one more time. Let's just say we get to the point one day where we're going to be planting another church. Okay, now you're getting with me. Uh, yes, one day, one day. Well, this might be a helpful tool, not only for you know our future endeavors, but then for others who maybe are just cutting their teeth on this and they need some wisdom. I don't pretend to have it all figured out. I can tell someone much more what not to do than what to do in a lot of areas. But as they would go to these places, what did they teach? What did they what did they preach? What was the foundation? Well, I know it was New Testament doctrine. I know that they were well-versed in the Old Testament, that it would probably just come out in their preaching and teaching. Uh, and we see that in the letters of Paul and the letters. But, but we don't really have anything of Barnabas in here, and so it's just kind of neat to be able to say, hey, you know, this, this might work. 
We could take this and say, breaking bread with Barnabas. So we began a journey that uh, started looking at our Savior. So it's fairly logical, if you'll go along with me. We need to know who Jesus is. If we're going to plant a church and we want to see a church grow, we need to know who Jesus is, don't we? We need to have a biblical New Testament definition of who Jesus is. And so we began that journey by looking at his, his, uh, his humanity. And that was easy to do at Christmas time, right? We got all the stories of him being born and the incarnation and it just flows. And then after that, we looked at a little bit of his divinity, his deity, the Godhead aspect of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I chose John's gospel for this because he lines out those seven sign miracles that were given to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And all these things that John wrote, he tells us, were written that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, now we enter into another segment of that. Having considered Christ's humanity and Him coming and, and living among us as lowly and meek as He was, we considered His miracles and the power that was at His disposal, power over nature, power over, over, over diseases, power over sin, power to give life. What a loving Savior. Now we come to the next segment that we'll spend a good amount of time doing. And I'd like to invite you to join me in looking at Christ's messages. Or His discourses, if you will. Some of His conversations. So far I've been able to break this down into about three segments. We have His sermons, which is a Sermon on the Mount where we're going today. We also have His parables. For those in Sunday school, it might be a good review time, but I think we'll be able to, to dig into the parables a little bit more through an exposition. It'll be a great time. And then we'll probably look at some of his conversations. For instance, there's a lot that we can learn from Jesus Christ in the conversations he had with people as he went about his ministry. For instance, what did he teach about marriage and divorce? Uh, he did teach on that in a conversation that he had. What, what did he teach about you know the law and, and these kind of things? Some of that will be covered in the Sermon on the Mount, but there are conversations he had with Peter about what the church is and, and the foundations of it, what disciples are, are to be doing as a church. So the conversations, the sermons, the parables, the conversations of Christ. I don't know how long it will take. Maybe it will take until Jesus comes back, and that could be five minutes, and that will be fine with me. But nevertheless, join me in Matthew chapter 5. I want to draw your attention to one verse. Now, we don't have time this morning to read 5, 6, and 7, but you need to. Hear me. You need to read over and over and over till you, you think you've, you've read it enough, and then it just might start to congeal a little and read it some more. 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Look at chapter 5 and verse number 20. I've chosen this verse. Because if we can hinge upon it, I think the entire sermon will pivot from chapter 5 and verse number 20. I'd like for you to read it out loud with me, if you would. Jesus said, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I pray for your help as we embark on this journey. A journey of journeys, no doubt. How many books have been written? How many sermons have been preached? Much more eloquently than I can on this wonderful sermon. Lord, this is so life-changing when it, when it impacts the world.
the way that it should through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for your help as, as we endeavor on this to unfold what's here a little bit more. May we get a good overview, a, a bird's eye view, if you will. Lord, help us to do that, to see these chapters and may they all congeal together in one unified teaching from this Sermon on the Mount. I pray that you'll bless your people that will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his precious name I pray, amen. Amen. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. I'm afraid that the Sermon on the Mount, after all that I've read and all that I've studied, after having read it and read it and read it and read it and read it, going and looking at what everybody else has written, there's some really good books out there on this, by the way. One of the books that's probably changed my life is the studies in the Sermon on the Mount by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, tremendous work on this. Do I agree with Dr. Jones on every aspect? Well, no, I, I understand that. He's coming from a little bit of a different perspective. But as far as an expositor, you won't find a better one when it comes to this segment. There are other, other writings as well. If you want a bibliography, I can give that to you. But what I'm afraid is that so many people down through the course of time have really, really misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount. As we begin to delve into it, we need to know how to approach it. And as simply as I can tell you, friend, you need to approach it with a clean slate in your mind. You need to approach it with an open heart and an open mind that says, Lord, I don't need some theological system yet. I just need what you teach. And if you'll come to it that way, then the Lord will speak to you personally, and it will help your life. It will. Now, I've had a personal journey with the Sermon on the Mount. When I was in college, uh, Dr. Molinix, he, he could preach on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how many messages I heard from him on the Sermon on the Mount. And I would come to this sermon, and I would study this sermon, and I'd say, you know, that's what a Christian ought to be. That's what a Christian should look like. And I would, I would endeavor to do that. I've had a journey with the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, well, let's just illustrate this way, okay? How many of you read Winnie the Pooh growing up, or you read, read to your children Winnie the Pooh? Did you know in New York Public Library, maybe you've been there, maybe you've seen it, they actually have the Winnie the Pooh, Pooh teddy, teddy bear, teddy bear. It's actually there. You can go and take your picture with it. It's in a glass case. And right there, sitting in the Winnie the Pooh case, you have Winnie the Pooh in the middle, and it doesn't look anything like it does in the book, by the way. So, yeah. It's, 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 but next to him, of course, you've got, you know, the whole gang is there. How many of you remember, you know, Tigger, and, and then you've got Rue, and you've got Piglet, and then you've got Eeyore. Well, okay, Pastor, you're way off. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on. We're going somewhere with it. All right, when you read Winnie the Pooh, some people, okay, how, how can I do this tactfully? Some people have come to the Sermon on the Mount, and they have approached it a lot like Tigger. Now, maybe I should have kept some of the kids in here. We've got some, some young, young folks in here that might be able to demonstrate for us what Tigger looks like. Remember Tigger? He's got the spring in his tail. Oh, I can't impersonate him, but Tigger is it's just like, everything is, he's so full of, it's already happening. Well, there's an aspect in which people come to the Sermon on the Mount and they say, hey, you know, this is wonderful, and then they endeavor on this, but then there's other people that come to it, and they wind up more like Eeyore. Remember Eeyore? Probably one of the most uh, famous episodes for him was his birthday party, right? 
I can impersonate him a lot better than I can figure. It's, I guess that's just my my glass, you know, perspective there. I don't know. But Eeyore, okay. Now, what are we doing? The Sermon on the Mount. Either you know they approach it like Tigger in that, hey, we're already kind of in this kingdom and and it's already done, and look at this, and, or they approach it in another way, kind of like Eeyore, like oh, I can never do that, and it's never going to be good enough, and I can. And there's this vacillation sometimes. I've had a journey with the Sermon on the Mount. There have been times where I've read it and I've been, I've been, you know, in the clouds with the Lord. I'm thinking, oh, this is wonderful. And then I, I endeavor to set out to try to, you know, do better and, and follow the Lord better. And well, then I wind up eventually like He or because, well, I come to certain things and then I'm doing pretty good for a while. But then I approach a, an aspect of it, and in my fallen condition, I, I wind up, I wind up hurting my Savior. Now, I'll put that in, in perspective, I think, in a way that will help us understand how he sees us. Remember, the Lord knows our frame. That we are but dust. So as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, I want to I tell you, there's different viewpoints on it. And when you read other people's writings on the Sermon on the Mount, it might help you to know what you're looking at in, in a way that you can pinpoint some things. Now, there's different perspectives. There's the Roman Catholic perspective, traditionally, that said, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's great reading, but it's not for your average Christian. That's for people who really want to dedicate their life, and, and they'll go live in a monastery. Those people that are monks, they can keep the Sermon on the Mount. But for the average Christian, they're not going to be able to do it. And then, you know, with that came the Reformation. So you have Martin Luther and his two kingdoms Aspect. So Martin Luther then took what Rome taught and he, he adapted a little bit for his, own, for his own studies and he came to the conclusion that, well, there's really two kingdoms. You know, there's the personal aspect of where we, we have our everyday life, but then the Sermon on the Mount really deals with magisterial things. It deals with, with, this, with this world's kingdom. So, you know, when you're dealing with legal situations, the Sermon on the Mount is where you go but when you're walking in your everyday life. But there's still a bifurcation, right? There's still this... Pitting against, okay, average Christians can't do it, but the monks can't. Okay, uh, well, your everyday Christian life, you're going to fall, but, but then in the legal system, in the justice system, two kingdoms, we, we can do this. Now, Martin Luther, he was the man who was uh, the, the impetus behind what we have as the Lutheran church. Let me say this. Now, the Lutheran view on this is basically they take and look at, at the Sermon on the Mount, like we look at the Old Testament and the Torah. Now, this has some good qualities to it. Okay, it really does. So I want you to go with me on this for a minute. I'm not, not a Lutheran, I'm a Baptist, but just hear this out because I think this is something that, it can be convicting. It can be convicting. So what, what they'll take the Sermon on the Mount to do is they'll look at it and they'll say, Jesus went up into the mountain, so did Moses. And then, you know, you have these two laws that are given and the purpose of the law is to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So in other words, what they'll say is when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, you try to live it, you find out you can't do it, it shows you your absolute need for Christ, and it leads you to Him. I'll tell you, I can't argue with that too hard. Can I? Well, if I apply... You see, I think they just got it in the wrong dispensation. <laughs> Alright, that's how that boils down. The truth is, is there, but it's just applied to the, wrong, to the wrong era, to the wrong age. Because what Jesus was doing wasn't replacing the law of Moses, He was fulfilling it. So I don't think it goes far enough. There's, I think there's one commentary that documented 30-something different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Over 30-something. 
And when I uh, when I took it in in school, I think we narrowed it down to like eight or nine out of all thirty of those. But can I tell you how I approach it? Just in case you're wondering. Now this, you know, I can't go to chapter and verse and say this is how you need to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. But I'll just tell you how I've I've grown in it. I've had a growing period through the Sermon on the Mount. I'll tell you, I believe that Jesus gave this. It, it's magnificent. It, it's some of the best stuff you can read as a Christian. It will change your life if you'll begin to, to try to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 through 7. Now, there's an old uh, old dispensational view that, um, you know, like J. Vernon McGee in History of the Bible, he talks about the Sermon on the Mount as being uh, the law that the Lord is going to uh, run everything by in the millennium. I'm with you. I agree with that. But I think we do a disservice to hold it only to the future. I really believe we can gain from it now. That we ought to, as disciples of the Lord, come to this and say, I, I want to do what Jesus says. So I approach it simply as that. As a disciple, as a follower of the Lord, show me what to do. That means that one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to rule with a rod of iron and this earth is going to be under a reign of peace for a thousand years until, you know, at the end of that thousand years, the devil is loose for a little season and then uh, the great final judgment of everything. But up until that point, what am I supposed to be doing? Do I just, you know, ignore it? So if you take that hard, fast position that says it's only for the millennium, then you're going to miss a lot here. You're going to miss a lot here. It's for today. Just as much as it will be for them. And this fits with the idea of sanctification, if you really think about it. Because when someone gets saved, they get the Holy Spirit in them. And God begins working on them, changing them, conforming them into the image of Christ. Like I prayed in my opening prayer. We want to look more like Jesus when we get done here than we did before we started. Being conformed to His image. He's the second Adam. He's the one that restores all that was lost in the first Adam. And so through this life, I'm going to have some, some falls. I'm going to have some knockdowns. I'm going to have some areas where I fall short because I'm living, in essence, with these two natures. The old man is crucified with Christ. Yes, and Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. He says, the life I now live in the flesh. Did you get that? I live by the power of the Son of God. Friend, if you're going to see any victory in your life when it comes to the aspects of this Sermon on the Mount, it's going to be when you say, Lord, I'm not doing this in my own strength. Because when you do it in your own strength, oh, woe is me, I failed again, I can't do it. Okay, I'm going back to Eeyore there. God doesn't want you to live in that kind of depressed state. He wants you to look and be blessed. He wants you to be, yes, I'll use the word, happy. Blessed are. Now this is an amazing portion of the Beatitudes. Now I don't want to get too far into the Beatitudes. We'll do that. I want to get an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Notice with me the Beatitudes part number 1 can be seen in Matthew chapter number 5 verses 1 through 12. We want to have a balanced approach when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll tell you, if you'll approach it simply as a disciple, you will do well. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to read this and I want to get what you have for me. In chapter 5, look at verse number 1. Jesus seeing the multitudes. Now, if you connect it to chapter number 4, he has just been healing and preaching 
It's interesting, I didn't see the word preach anywhere in chapter 5. He's been preaching, and his message really was taken up in chapter 4 by that of John the Baptist. Now let's set the stage a little bit more. Jesus Christ, having been born, was baptized. Remember studying his baptism together. He was also led of the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted. After that, this is when Matthew tells us this sermon was given. This message came. Only after he had been preaching... Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. Now, in chapter 4, towards the end of it, also he had called some key disciples. Now, he calls them over a period of time. And, and in fact, uh, Matthew's not going to be called, I think, until chapter 9, if I remember that correctly. But back in chapter number 4, you have Peter and Andrew and James and John. At least those are listed. And they leave their, their fishing and they follow Jesus immediately. Straightway they follow him. So he's already got a gathering. He's got a following of people. That's the multitudes that have seen him healing and doing everything that he's been doing. And then he's got these key disciples that he has gone to and said, it's time for you to follow me. And they leave and they follow him. So notice the two groups that Matthew tells us are present. He says, seeing the multitudes. Go back to chapter 4. We understand who that is. He went up into a mountain. And when he was set, this is the position of teaching in that day. Uh, totally understandable. So he would sit, and depending on where you see this being given, a lot of times the landscape itself can be used kind of as an amphitheater so that he can project his voice better. Uh, five, six, and seven, this is a lengthy portion. But remember, people would follow Jesus, and they would go and sit with him for days at a time. So you ever been to like a seminar or something like that where you've had like multiple days of of instruction, sometimes the people would do that with Jesus, and, and he would come. Here he sits on this mountain, and he begins to teach. When he was set, his disciples came unto him. Who came? Disciples. So who is the Sermon on the Mount intended initially for? Disciples. Those who would follow Jesus. doesn't matter if you're going to be a monk or not. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have believed on the Lord for salvation, then you can find application here. You don't have to bifurcate it. You don't have to split it. You don't have to do all this fancy stuff. Just read it and say, I want to follow Jesus. Notice here in verse number two, it says, His disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, He opened his mouth. Now this phrase, it's a... It's, um, it's structured in the language as an indicator. This is a clue. Okay, this wasn't just some thing that Jesus did off the cuff. He prepared for this. He actually invested himself leading up to this. So when you look at his sermon, there is a definite structure to it. In fact, the structure has to be divine. When I studied at least even the first 12 verses, which um, I won't go into it in detail, but I brought it just in case I needed anything. When I broke this down, I counted all the words. I know you're looking at that going, you're crazy. Yeah. This was so helpful to me. So helpful. And I encourage you. You know, you don't have to do it like this, but at least look at the text. When I started unfolding this, I said, there's no other way that this could be anything but the Word of God. This is Scripture. No doubt about it. I already knew that to be true. I believe that to be true. But having handled it, it verifies it. 
When you look at verses 1 through 12, there's a certain amount of words in each portion. There's, there's four Beatitudes on either side of one another. And, uh, and it's amazing. You can see one just right off, off the top here if you see uh, verse 3 and look at verse number 10. This would be your inclusio. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the book in there? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That encapsulates these beatitudes. And it's just amazing to see. This is the inspired word of God. And the Holy Spirit has put every word here, breathed by God, on purpose for nobody else but you. Now, the whole world gets to enjoy the Word of God as it's revealed. But if you will have ears to hear, and if you will apply yourself to study this and to say, Jesus, what did you mean by that? Read this. And I don't just mean devotionally. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Got that one down, don't you? You got that figured out? You know what it is to be poor in spirit? Blessed are they that mourn. So if I just go around eoring all day, is that what that means? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. What does it mean to be hungry and thirsty for righteousness? What does it mean to be merciful in the sense that what Jesus is teaching? This is his introduction. The sermon has a structure, a very detailed structure. He has an introduction, and uh, we're given the setting. We just went over that. It's in, I believe, on the north shore of Galilee. He goes up into this mountain, and he teaches he has his introduction, then he gives his body, and then he gives a conclusion with some warnings to say, you need to, you need to watch out for these kind of people, and you need to build your life on these sayings. And he draws the whole thing to a close, and the whole body of his sermon. So we're going to break that down and look at it you know, unit by unit, thought by thought. But do you see how he put some time into this? So that phrase, he opened his mouth and taught them, that's significant. That's significant. This took preparation. This took planning. And so, I encourage you, just like these disciples, if you say you're a disciple, I'm going to encourage you, why don't you climb on up that mountain? Why don't you, yourself, sit at the feet of Jesus? I can preach sermon after sermon, and you know something might click along the way, but I'll tell you what will really change your life is when you go up that hill and you sit at the feet of Jesus and you say, Lord, I want to hear you. I want to hear you. And if you'll read this, listen to it. You know, if, uh, put it put it on a, on MP3 or whatever you, you got to do. Find a person that you like, you know, to listen to. There's there's drawbacks to that too. I know. I listen to scripture. You know, I've got Alexander Scurvy, and then I've got some other people that have read the scriptures. And I constantly am catching myself because my mind is racing, right? I'm listening, and then about six verses into it, I'm going, what did I just listen to? I've got to go back and start it over. I don't know how many times you have to start it over until you get it all. Just let it sink in. Soak it up. Say, Lord, I want to sit at your feet as a disciple. So the disciples come. He gives them, he gives them the Beatitudes. He then, that's in verses 1 through 12. He then is going to encourage his disciples to be savory salt and city lights. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. Right? Persecution for righteousness sake, there's a reward. If you'll just stick through it, if you'll, if you'll see this thing through, God's going to reward you one day for everything you have to go through for me. 
That's what Jesus, in essence, is saying. Now, while you're here, you need to be salt and you need to be light. And those are those are analogies that we can understand. Salt, uh, the preservation of it, the healing of it, the cleansing of it, light, you know, piercing darkness. This is what our presence in the world as disciples is going to do. Then he goes into this section between verses 17 and 48. And he gives really a contrast between the letter of the law and the spirit of the disciple. And he's going to go through the segment and, and you'll see the key indicators. He'll say over and over, you've heard that it hath been said of old time. What's he referring to? He's talking about the law of Moses. Now, just before that, he says, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He says, basically, we're not getting to the truth of what God's law should be doing in us. It needs to be an inward change. You see, in his day, verse number 20 that we read, what did he say? He said, except your righteousness exceed what? The righteousness. Now, keep in mind, you know, they're, they're going to be uh, privy to his teachings as well. And he's not going to come out and just lamb blast them right away. He's going to save that for later after they basically have enough rope to hang themselves and their noose is, is, is tied up. He's going to pronounce all those woes on them as being hypocrites. But here, Jesus is going to go into the law. Why? Because the, the, the idea of the day was, if I could just look good on the outside and just keep all this stuff and, and cross my T's and dot my I's, if I do all of that and I'm religious and, and everybody sees that, it really doesn't matter what's happening on the inside. This is why I say Jesus is going to contrast the letter of the law. Remember Paul said that the letter of the law killeth. He's going to contrast that with the spirit that ought to be in a disciple. It goes above and beyond that. It's not just enough for you to not commit the act of murder. If you hate, it's murder in your heart. And God already sees it even when nobody else doesn't. You, you with me on that? Okay, so that is the contrast. That's going to carry all through um, verse 48. So we see the law fulfilled in verses 17 to 20. And then he's going to give an exposition of hatred and murder in verses 21 to 26. He's going to expound on lust and adultery in verses 27 to 32. He's going to expound on how important it is for you to keep your promises and to be a person of your word in verses 33 to 37. He's going to talk about revenge and restitution. And how a disciple ought to approach that in verses 38 to 42. He's going to talk about how you can, how can really grow in the love of God and be mature, be whole, be grown as the Lord would have you to be. To be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's in verses 43 to 48. Now after he does that in chapter 5, in chapter number 6, he's going to tell us a little bit about the difference that discipleship ought to make in your life. It ought to be different, right? I'm different now than I was before I said I would follow Jesus. I am. There's a difference that it makes. You know why? Because I learned how to pray. I learned what it was like to really give from the heart. Not just as a religious exercise to feel spiritual. No, I learned what it meant. Because I'm giving out of a heart of mercy. It, it also goes back to the Beatitudes. Take those Beatitudes and read the rest of the sermon and say, where do I see this in the rest of Jesus' teaching? The introduction is going to prepare you for what's coming, right? So when he talks about giving of alms in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, you can relate that back to what he said about blessed are the merciful, for they 
shall attain mercy. To be merciful in that sense says that you're not just turning a blind eye to this person. You look at that person and you say, by God's grace, that could have been me. If it weren't for his grace, you have enough compassion to look on that person and put yourself in their shoes and say, it's only by God's grace. And you see that. And that is an inwardness that moves you to say, I want to help. That's mercy. That's, that's generosity in the real sense. So your alms giving. And then, uh, so we see he's going he's gonna to talk about a disciple that gives, how that looks like. Uh, a disciple that prays, part number one. He's going to say, when you pray, you don't need to do it like the Pharisees who, you know, they stand in the street corners and they blow the trumpets and they have all the fanfare. No, just pray. Your father that's in secret will see the inward part. You see how it really ought to change who we are in our character? He's going to give a model prayer, the disciples' prayer in chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. He's going to talk about how a disciple should fast and what that would look like. Boy, that's something that we're missing a lot of today, I think. A disciple that fasts. He's going to talk about having a mind for heavenly things. In chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's going to talk about uh, having not only a mind for uh, heavenly things, but how are we to have our, our minds set on earthly things? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and on his righteousness and all these things will be added. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't get so caught up in the materials. You need to be, you need to have the proper mind when it comes to heavenly things. You also need to have the proper mind when it comes to earthly things. Right? I mean, this is just magnificent. And then he talks about how a disciple should have discernment. Judge not that you be not judged. Chapter 7, the first part of it, one of the most misquoted portions of scripture, by the way. A disciple who has discernment. He's going to talk about a disciple that prays part number two. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. What does it look like for this disciple to seek his heavenly Father and actually get his prayer answered? So you see, that's almost an inclusio, isn't it? Talking about prayer. Oh, isn't that marvelous? A disciple that gives, a disciple that prays, a disciple's prayer, what that looks like, a disciple that fasts, a disciple who has a mind for heavenly things as well as a mind for earthly things, a disciple with discernment, and a disciple that prays. I'll tell you, if you find somebody like that, you're finding somebody who's really walking for Jesus and it's changed their life. Then he's going to talk about uh, fruits and foundations. This is chapter 7, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. He's going to help us know how to stay on the course. To stay on the path of true life. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And then after he shows us how to stay the course on this path of life, he's going to caution us to steer clear of false prophets and false teachers. Now remember, he's been talking about these religious leaders that everybody should be looking up to, and he's been talking about some things that are wrong with them because they don't have it on the inside. It's all outside. Friend, you need to find somebody who loves Jesus from the inside and walk with them. Because how can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos says, we've got to have it in here before it ever impacts out here. If we do it the other way, we've got a cart full of horse. And then he's going to close his sermon by encouraging us to stand firm on a strong foundation. He'll give the story about the, the wise man and the foolish man. The wise man built his house upon the... Yeah. We need to go back to Sunday school. We don't what is that foundation? If we build on these sayings. Now let's think about how this whole thing wrapped up.
Jesus goes apart from this mountain. His disciples have come to him. He sits. He opens his mouth with a prepared sermon. And he begins to teach. And it was to his disciples. But the multitudes are there too. And by the time he concludes, what a reaction. You read the last portion of chapter 7. It says they were just blown away. They were astonished. Why? Because what he did in sitting and teaching what he taught was completely different from everything they'd ever seen or known. Because in a rabbi, he would sit down and he would quote Rabbi so-and-so and Rabbi Ben so-and-so and Rabbi this and Rabbi this says this. And by the time, you know, it's almost like being in seminary class sometimes. You know, you sit down and it's like you study this study this doctrine or something, and you get, you get like five or six different views. You know, like we started out today. You've got this view, the Roman Catholic view. You've got the Luther view. You've got Martin Luther's view. You've got you know, the, the old dispensational view. You've got this view. And 30 different views of this. By the time you leave, you know which one's right. But aren't you thankful that we can stand up with authority and say, no, this is the disciples' sermon. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to read this like a disciple. Don't get caught up in, in all of the, the different ins and outs of theological takes on stuff. Just read it as a disciple and say, Lord, I'm going to strive to be poor in spirit. If you want to know what that means and what that looks like, you'll have to come back next time when we get into those Beatitudes. Lord, I want to know what it really means to mourn. Am I mourning in my life the way I should? When you break those Beatitudes down, four of them, the first four really deal with who we are inside. And then the, the last four deal with who we are out here. You see how that's the introduction to the whole sermon? Because he goes through the law and he says, this is what you've been doing outside, but you missed it inside. Your heart is far from God. It sets the tone, doesn't it? Oh, when you're praying, chapter number six, this is who you ought to be inside. Don't be like these people who've missed it and are only focusing on the outside. Friend, God is more concerned about who you are inwardly. Now, I began by telling you a little bit about my journey with the Sermon on the Mount and how that can lead to frustration. If you just take it like, uh, can I tell you, Mark, Karl Marx was completely wrong about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Karl, Karl Marx, he wrote the Communist Manifesto. And there's some commentaries that even talk about this as the, Mess the Messianic Manifesto or Messiah's Manifesto. Uh, I understand the, the idea of the Manifesto, but it's not just a Manifesto, friend. Karl Marx came to this, and, and so did Gandhi, by the way. Gandhi did too. They came to the Sermon on the Mount, and both of them said, it's just a bunch of rules that you have to keep, and then you're a Christian. This was the same error that Rome made, and it led them down a path of works for salvation. That's the end result. And if you're working for salvation, it's no more of grace. Paul says, and if it's of, you know, it's either works or it's of grace. Paul said, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we've got to be careful how we approach this. It's not just, I keep all these rules and then I get to go to heaven one day. Or you'll never make it. You will never make it with that mindset. If you come to this and say, I'm going to come the way that Jesus said I need to, I'm going to come bankrupt first, spiritually bankrupt, and I'm going to realize I've got nothing in my account. I am completely destitute before God. 
That's the path of salvation. That's where the kingdom of heaven will be yours. When you come by faith, not in your own righteousness, but trusting Jesus, because he's the ultimate fulfillment of all of it. And my struggle, my journey has been, you know, hopefully one of growth. Hopefully the Heavenly Father, you know, is looking at my life and saying, he, he's a little, he's a little closer to being like Jesus now than he was when I first saved him, you know, when he was 14. I hope I've grown some. It's been a long journey. And I've, I've experienced frustration with this. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to crawl back to my closet, my prayer closet, to my father and say, I blew it again. I blew it again. I blew it again. But let me put it in perspective. Okay, we've got some little ones in the service. I love having children in the service, especially these little, little ones. You know, there's going to be a day very soon, uh, probably not long from now, where, where the little ones that are with us, they're going to start taking those first steps. Right? How many of your parents, you've, you've been through the joys of that, or maybe an aunt and uncle who was around, you know, there to see the first steps. Maybe, you know, this is terrible. Isn't it bad when, when the first steps are taken with the babysitter? It's like, I don't need to understand. Let's pretend it didn't happen. Let's sit up on the Okay. That's a precious moment. But when those steps are being taken, think about that. As a father... As a father, I don't know what father in his right mind. I'm sure there's some crazy people out there that would because they're not in their right mind. But I don't know what father in their right mind, as they see their child, try to take those first steps, just those baby steps, and then, boom, they're down. And, if, you know, dad's always right there so that we know they're not going to get hurt, right? There might be some falls along the way. Like the eagle has to kind of get a little help out the nest sometimes because they don't want to go. Sometimes we work with, but what joy do we have? To look and see pretty soon, you know, first steps, first steps. And they're finally getting their balance. They're going, and it's only a couple and then they're down. Can I tell you, as we approach this as disciples, we can expect the Lord, your Heavenly Father, to have the same kind of joy to see that you're actually trying. He knows one day. You're going to be perfect. You're going to be sinless because he's going to glorify you. After, after we go through the doorway of the grave and, and we're with Jesus, and as John, as 1 John 3 said, we'll, we'll be like him, or we shall see him as he is. One day that's coming. And sin will have no presence whatsoever. But you know what? Don't stop trying. Don't stop giving up. Say, Lord, I didn't make it today. I'm going to get up tomorrow. And, and I know that you want me to do this. You want me to succeed. And I'm going to be more merciful tomorrow than I was today. I'm going to work on my heart, Lord, because there's some things in there that's not clean before you. And I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to just throw it to the wind and say, oh, fooey, I can't do it anyway. I'm just giving up. And it's, you know, maybe they were right. It's not for Christians. It's for super spiritually elite people or something. Else. Don't do that. Just say, Lord, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all. Just keep drawing closer to the light. And your heavenly father just like an earthly father would look and see those first steps and see the fall, the joy that it brings. As you approach the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to approach it with freedom, not bondage. I want you to approach it with liberty that says Christ is going to help me. I can do all things through Christ. The next time you're, you're hit at a point of spiritual impact and you feel like you know the Holy Spirit's tugging at you, you need to be merciful and you're not being merciful, why don't you remember this and say, Lord, I'm not going to fall down this time because... I'm going to trust you to help me. Exercise the mercy that you have for me. 
I'm going to show that to them. I'm going to keep my heart clean because I want to, I want to know God. I want to see God in my life. To see God is to know Him. This is such a marvelous sermon. If you just take this sermon and read it and read it and read it and know it inside and out, you will be a better disciple. You will know better what Jesus asks you to do as you follow Him when it comes to your giving, your prayer, your prayers, all of it. All of it. How are you to be in this world as a follower of Christ?